A word to the wise. We are an explicit podcast tackling choicey adult themes as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. This week, we are talking about chapters 32 through 39, the end of part three, Conquer, as well as, I mean, like the rest of the book and the previous book. So catch the fuck up. Hey there, this is Cross. And I'm PJ. And we are Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. Think of us as your drunk weekly book club. Today we're going to be breaking down (laughs) chapters 32 through 39, the end of part three, Conquer. I'm sorry, I don't have a co-host this week. Um, It's been replaced simply by mouth noises. Yep, excellent. Before we do that, let's talk about what we're drinking. So mouth noises, what are you having? So I don't have a name for it, but it's just some tiki shit. It's kind of a rum punch, one and a half ounces of clear rum, one and a half ounces of dark rum. One and a half ounces of orange juice, an ounce of lime juice, and half an ounce of grenadine shaken, served over ice with, I had mint, so I put mint leaves in there and uh, lime wedges, <laughs> and then I poured it into my tiki glass. So I took a picture of it, and you can't see anything in the drink. <laughs> Except for the tiki glass. <laughs> so, <laughs> nice. So I put, I, I took a picture of it out in the snow because... uh of course I did. And it's a really weird, like, tiki dude, but it makes it look like he's shivering because it's just <laughs> some some naked dude and I'm sipping out of his head. That's, um, that's interesting and different. Yep. Following that up, I've got, I believe, the same beer I had last week because I haven't been to the liquor store. So a verbal tip, which is the uh, Mosaic and Citra Hazy IPA from Falling Knife. Nice. Nice. That sounds tasty. Got? I am having a classic. It's an easy one. Guys, it's on our website a couple of different times. I'm having an old fashioned. It is my typical style old fashioned where I'm using grapefruit and grapefruit bitters as opposed to regular with some homemade turbaned simple syrup. So it's a slightly different sugar. It's a little bit more molasses-y. Gives it a little bit more that like like brown sugar flavor. And nice. yeah, it's uh, it's very solid. I'm following that up with a blue detour from Evergreen. It's an IPA. Um, and it's tasty. <laughs> Good. What kind of IPA? What kind of hops? What are you? What are we looking at? You know, I'm. Or does I'm it not, not say? I'm not seeing any detail in this one. Generally, they're really detailed. I actually picked this because it had the coolest looking label. I, I've had Evergreen before, of, but the fucking time. like this was definitely one of those. Like there, I definitely just are, spilled it on my mouse pad. There are, <laughs> of course, you did. Yeah. There are breweries that I know put out amazing shit that I have never purchased in a liquor store. Because I don't like their labeling. Hmm. And that's the, the pettiest, dumbest shit ever. But I, I I truly believe that aesthetics and sort of visuals are an important part of the experience when it comes to craft beer. Yeah. The the label itself kind of looks and reminds me of like a one of the old like Mac wavy loading screens, you know, like the, the sleep screen, not loading. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It kind of looks yeah. like that, but as though you took like a, a frame every second and then overlaid them. It's pretty cool. Okay, cool. It, it will be tasty. Uh, so with that, we'll go into last week's predictions. We've got three to talk about. They'll be real quick. So the couple that we have two from the previous episode and then one from an episode prior. So 
The first one from last episode was who's killing Pliny? And you said Severo and it was not Severo. Ooh. It was a whole bunch of people. We don't know. Actually, it could have been Severo. It doesn't say that it's not Severo. <clears throat> well, it, it says that like his legion turned on him. So and Severo wasn't like there. There. Yeah. yeah. It's- I love that it's described as like the slurp of the razor. You know, <laughs> yeah. I know what a, a razor sounds like when it kills someone. Drink, motherfucker. Yep. Good, good work. Kept with that. All right. <clears throat> Our second one. Uh, Dara makes a note earlier about letting Aja escape. Why does he let her live instead of capturing her? So basically just predicting the actual person. You said forlorn. That's why Aja lives. And that was. Mm-hmm. It could be correct, but it's not. It's, it's not, not the really correct. Yeah. It's no, it's wrong. It's just straight up wrong. Aja obviously lives for reasons that we will get into throughout the episode, but you should have read, so you should know at this point that it's the Sovereign, um, and that's why, because it would be a marker to Trek. So, they've talked about the signatures multiple times. Wouldn't Mm -hmm. that be something that wouldn't go just kind of overlooked by Aja? Perhaps. Perhaps. Yeah. I think that plays into the final question in general of this chapter. Okay. Is it perhaps bait? And that's, that's a part of the reason someone else like baiting the other side of the the hook for them yeah which i think gets into a question we'll talk about right at the end so way to way to pre pre-gave that one pj you're welcome our final question that we're talking about from predictions is will darrow tell other people other howlers about his real color see i like to believe that i'm correct in this one when i said no not right away he'll use several well not that i'm correct that i'm not wrong yet because I'm going to take Lauren's stance and say that Ragnar is not a person. <laughs> I, I, I don't know that that's the correct stance. So we're going to we're going to back up from that one. Uh, you're uh, drinking. Yep. Yep. Because, you know, we're still stuck with the uh, excellent. Excellent. Are you using a straw? Of course I'm using a straw. It's a tea glass. That makes sense. That makes sense. OK, it checks. It could have been like what a kind of glass. savage do you think I am? I was thinking like a, a low sipping out glass. of a tiki glass. I mean, I don't no, know. this thing's tall. It's like eight inches That's tall. It's a big tiki glass. Okay, mm-hmm. so with that, we will get into chapters thirty-two through thirty-nine. Going into our breakdown, I just wanted to say, like, to top off this conversation, today's whole conversation is going to center around some of like the craziest and coolest scenes, and it's just it's great. Like there's there are so many of these moments that are perfectly captured. I can't think of anything to really pick apart on the side of the writing or like any any false spots. This is where I think the book flexes some of its best muscles. Yeah, it, it was very perfectly descriptive. And to start that off, we go right into chapter 33, which is a dance. I love the title of this chapter and how it fits into the conversation that ensues between Dara and Mustang throughout this whole thing. You know, they they go to the practice razor room. There's the intro with, you know, Ragnar standing outside the door, <laughs> sleeping with his eyes open, <laughs> which is just terrifying. I mean, he also just has tattoos of eyes on his eyelids, which I mean, it's pretty dope. Extra scary. I think they're magic tattoos. I don't I don't think so. There, there hasn't been magic yet. I mean, I mean, maybe. Do you think they're magic tattoos? Razors are kind of magic. I mean, not really. They're like electric. Boogie, oogie, oogie, oogie. Okay. Uh, <laughs> hey, it's a dance. Get it? Full circle. Okay. So I, I do find this entire chapter, the entire conversation. I don't know if that counts as full circle. <laughs> it, was, it was barely a circle to begin with. Um, I This entire chapter has lovely conversation between Darrow and Mustang. It's so straightforward that it's digested as you read it kind of stuff. 
So there's not a ton to break down here, but there are a couple of things that we wanted to point out and talk about. So one of the things that I wanted to point out is more of an Easter eggy kind of thing. And it's on page 288 where they talk about the Drake Roddenberry equation. For those who don't know, the Drake equation came in 1961, was designed to begin a conversation around the likelihood that other life exists in the universe. It was not used or not intended to be used as solid evidence that life did exist, just to actually start the conversation. But Roddenberry, if you know things about sci-fi, Roddenberry is Gene Roddenberry is the man responsible for Star Trek. And so kind of the hyphenating of the names here is really interesting because Gene Roddenberry actually created a modified version of the Drake equation because he couldn't remember it in the middle of his Star Trek pitch, and he had to write something down to kind of explain the Drake equation, and so he just made one up, <laughs> um, which is yeah, really really funny. That yeah, that's pretty pretty awesome. I didn't catch that at all. Assumed it was just made up, but really cool that that actually ties in. Yeah, it's it's kind of funny. the The actual equation itself presented on the page is actually Drake's equation not the Drake Roddenberry. What was really funny that I found when doing research on this is according to the Star Trek encyclopedia, Drake himself visited the set one day and even viewed Roddenberry's second variation of the equation before gently pointing out that a raised value to the first power is merely the value itself, which is <laughs> just that's <laughs> so it's, it's a great little Easter egg nugget in the middle of this, this otherwise good chapter. It's been really cool seeing all the sci-fi nods within this book to mm-hmm. other iconic characters or works. Yeah. There's been a lot. So, I mean, let, let's count. What do we have so far? We have at least Star Trek, Star Wars, Ender's Game. Lord of the Rings. I know there's Lord of the Rings. Yep. I'm sure there's more. There's kind of the generic reference in and of itself with the wires falling out. There's Hitchhiker's Guide, I think, yep. at one point. I think there is. Yeah, there is, because we were talking about Hitchhiker's Guide and then it happened like they explicitly mentioned it. It, There there are a number of references and it is cool to kind of see all of the the various nods. Pierce Brown is a nerd like the rest of us. I mean, the rest of us. Yes. (laughs) So on 290, uh, I really like this part of the conversation that they have, which is I liked it because you said specialization makes us limited. Simple insects, a fact from which gold is not immune. And this is Darrow talking to Mustang about her paper that she wrote, had published Mm -hmm. and whatnot. I think it's kind of a great jumping off point for the chapter as a whole, as the society at large does seem aimed at generating people with a specific set of skills. Is that a Taken reference? It was a Taken reference. It was definitely (laughs) a Liam Neeson Taken reference. I didn't do my best Liam Neeson impersonation because I can't do impersonations, so I just didn't. And instead, just dropped the line on you. Did you piss yourself while doing it? (laughs) God damn it. I also saw that thread emerge on Twitter. (laughs) uh yeah i i really i really like the conversation though that she starts here right which is or that they darrow kind of has with her right because it speaks to sort of the ideas and the ideals that darrow holds you know dear is the idea that like anyone could do anything and that the specialization actually hurts society as opposed to just letting people exist and fill roles as necessary Mm -hmm. it made me think of ant farms interesting and ants i guess hear me out i've been watching a lot of ant YouTube lately. Why? Because <laughs> it's really interesting. Uh, specifically the channel Ants Canada. Super, super cool. And really sort of in-depth, almost storytelling of what's been happening in different ant farms that he has. But it, Ooh, it, boy. it basically shows how each individual member is assigned one task and 
effectively they work as a single unit, but they are very, very, very specialized in what they do. Like some are, some are there for protection. Some are there for like, some are in some species, some are bigger for like chopping up chunks of meat to be broken down further by smaller ants. Like they're, they're specifically born for a single task and they, they operate as essentially a single organism in that way. So to kind of extrapolate, that would be more similar to the society. That That's what, that's what I was talking about. The specialization. Yeah. Right, right, mm-hmm. right. So Mustang's argument is that the opposite is better. Yeah. Oh no, I agree. I'm just saying the the way the way this is described, the specialization being limiting for the individual. Yeah. Is oh how yeah. I think Def- of ants. Definitely. Yes, because ants are more of a, a high mind that simple insect, you know, that she's talking yeah. about. Totally. Exactly. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, seriously, highly suggest Ants Canada. It's super fucking cool. <laughs> You're really good at suggesting other things to move people away from our podcast. I love it. It's not it's moving good. away. It's just adding. Okay. Depth of depth of knowledge. Depth of understanding. Yes. It's funny. And ants. There's depth of ants. Depth of ants. You know, it's really important to understand our ant colony. It's made me want to build like an ant terrarium. No, you don't need another thing to take care of. You're right, but you're wrong. I'm not your mom. Um, so... <laughs> <laughs> there's conflict here to get back to the core theme too which i really like which is trust you know she can sense something is wrong no, after all these years cooks you're right you're right sorry no you're wrong the theme is you're cooks. wrong again the theme of the trilogy is cooks pj the theme of the book is trust okay we'll get we'll get to the, the next cook drop in the next book i don't i don't trust cooks you should trust cooks i do trust cooks i don't know trust and cooks don't go that well together in sentences as far as uh, making Jokes a funny go. joke go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I saw that struggle happen in live time. That was great. <laughs> that was great for everyone. No, was it, it good was for you? bad for me. It was bad for me. <laughs> it but, was good at my expense, I guess, for everyone else, unless they hate bad jokes. That's that's fair. Then why are you here? You know, she could say something is wrong, though, right? So that's Literature, like the whole trust thing. Maybe. Could be uh, it. Us being mm, drunken fools and talking about ants. Maybe. Maybe. Could be it. Could be it. Sorry. <laughs> Just like the idea of her wanting to be like let in instead of being pushed away is, uh, you know, is is certainly something in like Darrow's Darrow's comment on two ninety two ninety one is, you know, my lie is too great to build love upon. And it just kind of like strikes a, a sour note after this entire kind of like playful chapter that's very reminiscent of the way that they would kind of flirt back and forth in the first book. It it just it sucks. On, uh, it, on Darrow's end to be such an asshole. It also felt, it felt like the really heartwarming conversation he's had with Severo in the last few chunks about him being a red, like mm-hmm. the, the, the really sort of cathartic release of stress that he had when he told Severo and Severo didn't care and was still like willing to put up with his shit. Yeah, it's it, it, it seems like that was just kind of gone with the wind. Like it didn't matter here. It was just it, it seemed out of it seemed like I don't know. It seemed like he didn't grow at all from that conversation. I think I it was like really just a, I would agree with you. I think that he was using it as a release valve. And I think if nothing else, like the specialization conversation 
and the whole discussion around that is kind of like a, a loosening to some degree to see like if she's open to the idea, but he never really like sinks his teeth in, you know? Yeah, this this would have been the perfect opportunity to kind of probe a little bit more. Right. And he doesn't. Yeah, and that just like it stinks because you want him to like you want him to like bite back so badly at the very least to like just sit down and have some kind of a conversation. It doesn't have to be the like genuine I'm a red conversation, but to even have like a you know, I'm I'm what do the colors mean? You. Yeah. Like it, it it was it was less disappointing and more just frustrating and kind of confusing that he wouldn't have at least some sort of commentary, internal commentary, about how he shared this with Severo and it went well. Like even if he, even if he like sort of justified himself mm-hmm. internally, that would have been a lot more satisfying. This just kind of seemed like he didn't even take that in, into consideration. I think it also gets back to what you said when you know Severo had revealed it too. Though is that he really had like core feelings that really surrounded him when it came to kind of he wasn't he wasn't the one actually opening up here right it was Severo forcing him to open up he wasn't choosing to open up yeah but it still felt good for him to open up yes even even under duress and so I don't think he's ever he hasn't proactively made that choice yet and he literally does in the next chapter right which is what's extra kind of like layered on top of it is like oh man is it because the lie has gone on so long and that's why it's so bad? Or is it because you're afraid of scaring her away? And I think it's a little of A and a little of B. Mm, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if I buy that. In in what way? I think he's primarily ashamed. Yeah. Ashamed that he's let this go on. And I, I think it's more his relationship with her that he's already kind of fucking lost and he doesn't mm-hmm. want to lose it for not not because he's a red, but because he's been lying to her. That's fair. That's fair. That's also backed up in the text earlier in the book, right? Where it's like he didn't want to lie to her, which is why he didn't say anything when he left. Really? He didn't really yeah. leave her with anything outside of the ring. That was it. Right. Anything else on the chapter? Um, No, it was it was pretty straightforward. Yeah. Yeah, I'd agree. It was a, it was a pretty straightforward. I mean, it was it was a lot of good information. Just man, that him not even commenting on it felt very whiny. Like, mm-hmm. woe is me. She's never gonna like me if she knows who I really am. Join a fucking pop punk band, bitch. Um, that's what it felt like to me. <laughs> Join a pop punk band, Jesus, <laughs> Jesus. More more emo, lean emo. Cool. So chapter 34, Blood Brothers, (laughs) which I I think is really interesting because we do actually talk to very specifically two people who are very close to Darrow. The first being Lorne, of whom we've made comment on and talked about before. You know, they're said to be very similar to each other. The reason that Lorne even took him under his wing is because he thought they were the same kind of person, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, In terms of commentary, what did you make of Lorne's skepticism towards Ragnar? You know, obviously Darrow's kind of response regarding tactus is its own thing too but i i find lauren talking about him almost as like a just as a meat grinder as opposed to a person what were your thoughts there um i think it makes total sense because that's all he's been exposed he, he doesn't have the exposure to the other colors that darrow has he he has every single interaction that he's had with the stained have been just killing machines and weapon like ruthlessness in every single way 
even though he d- disagrees with the society to certain extents, as it stands now, it's still what raised him and what taught him and what just as just as the Reds of Lycos have been brainwashed to believe not brainwashed, but deceived to indoctrinated. Believe that, yeah. 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 Certain things about their existences without really probably insane clearances. He's he's only been exposed to what he's been taught. And uh, I, I don't think I can really fault him for feeling the way he does because of his personal experiences. Yeah, Lauren's Lauren's pretty straight up as they come, right? Like he's yeah. he is you're you're seeing what you're getting and you're getting what you're seeing. There's I, I don't want to say there's no nuance to him because there is nuance, right? But there is mm-hmm. a sort of truth to whatever his action is or his yeah. action being truth. He, like there's there's no deception, right? He's definitely a free thinker, but if you're never exposed to anything that lays contrary to mm-hmm. what what's shown, why would he have any reason to believe otherwise? So uh, going going in a little bit more too, I, I think it's interesting right after this conversation about Ragnar, we also talk about Tactus and kind of Darrow's response regarding him. You know, Darrow refers to him as a good man or had the opportunity to become a good man. And Lauren's quote is, you'll fall to ruin because you believe that exceptions to the rule make new rules, that an evil man can shed the trappings of wickedness just because you want him to. Men do not change. That is why I killed the wrath boy. Learn the lesson now so you don't have to learn it with a knife in your back later. Same same sort of deal. Why would he know otherwise? If he's only ever seen golds act as golds do, why would he believe anything else? That's fair. I, I guess that is that is a truly fair reading on that. I find it interesting because, it, I mean, it's a little bit different, right? Like the the comparison to Ragnar is one of color, one of Ragnar's status and having actually seen him in battle previously in arenas, you know, and like having I also believe Lorne is the only person to have killed the stain without a razor or at, the, or at least it's a big fucking deal, you know? So, right. We know that that's a big deal and that it's made a big point here. So like there's that comparison of like this is a crazy beast that you have on a chain. And then there's this other part where there's Tactus, who's this. You, you can interpret him as a different beast entirely. Call him a social beast. Call him a, a, a social is probably right because he's chasing it. He was chasing after power. Right. Yeah. It is interesting. There are similarities, but I don't think they're an identical read. No, but there are, there are comparisons that can definitely be made. And they, they are, in the eyes of Lorne, Darrow's actions are short-sighted and ill-conceived with both of them. Right. And Lorne, being a hundred-something-year-old, you know, just sees it that way. It's just reality. And Darrow makes a good point. Of the these are the thoughts of the generation that I'm trying to eradicate or whatever whatever it was something like that. Not that he's trying to eradicate the the generation, but eradicate the thoughts that thought process that right right. This is the old way. Yeah, definitely, and that that definitely makes sense. He has to kind of use that old way against the the sort of new way or the new way against the old way. Excuse me. So we move from the first part of Blood Brothers, you know, being his father of sorts into the conversation with Ragnar. Ragnar is laying down in a freezer uh, to imitate the sort of coldness of the moons that he's used to grown up and everything like that. And kind of After sitting on the, uh, the box of like rations and it breaking underneath him mm-hmm. and then just sitting in the humid cargo bay 
It's like, ah, no, fuck this. I'm, I'm going finding the freezer. <laughs> yeah, just goes and sits in a freezer, which is cool. Um, like you'd mentioned kind of before, it leaves them with like an isolated conversation. They're on their own and it yeah. kind of allows for this very open conversation to happen. And I find it really like just without talking about the conversation, we'll talk about it in a second. I find it really heartwarming and I find Ragnar a very compelling character. He's got such a different tone to him and that's obvious because of his color or it should feel obvious because of his color. He's a 180 from like the gold culture that we're submerged in for most of these books. But but he's he's a product of it. Yes, right. And he's, I mean, just the way that he thinks and what he fears are so ingrained in his society. Like, he hasn't been brainwashed by gold. His ancestors 400 years before were, and those those values have been passed down generation to generation. So he fears choice and freedom because he believes that... Essentially, he believes that an iron rain will come down and kill him and his family. Very true. Very true. And um, I actually so there's there's two different things that I kind of want to mention here about Ragnar, specifically in the conversation here with him, which I think feeds into kind of the history and the life of him, too. Right. You know, why plan? You plan. You decide. I do or do not. There is no plan. Right. So that's very it's kind of Yoda eat. But in a way, it's it's very real to his character. I really did like his uh, there's a thought that he has and he thinks carefully about it, but he says something along the lines of planning people who plan die a thousand times. Yes. Those who do die, but once I don't know exactly where that. Yeah. So what's super interesting. So that's on two ninety five, which is right under the part that I literally just read. So you just recanted the next line because it literally says he considers his words carefully between those lines. Mortals who plan die a thousand times. We who obey die, but once. So what's interesting is mortals who plan die a thousand times is very close to premeditatio malorum, which is the premeditation of evils, which is aligned straight out of meditations. Are we shocked? We shouldn't be. It's it's there. Also, actually, it might not be meditations. It might be the Tao of Seneca. I think it's letters to Lucilius. I didn't I didn't look it up beforehand, but I noticed it when I popped open the page. I'll fact check it at some point, but very stoic. Yes. Very real. Yes, thank you. Yes. Pre- appreciate that. Appreciate that. But I, I agree with you. The follow-up line is not out of sto- is not out of anything stoic, right? That we who obey, obey die but once really kind of speaks to that depth of character you're saying, right? Like he is very ingrained in his station in society. Mm-hmm. And I there's there's something honorable about that, but it's also a product of the limited scope that he's been fed. Right. He's he doesn't have the opportunity to understand where choices would bring him. Yeah, he's he's not used to choice at all. He's used to commands and orders. And that's the line that I really wanted to focus on, which is just a simple statement. Freedom drowns. And I just a that's just a compelling thought, right? Like the the ability to make choices drown you, you know, talking back to Darrow, basically. And my life being so simple is the best way forward. And it's super interesting because obviously Ragnar is pointing to this person who he thinks is a gold, who he's been taught as a god. But in reality is is a red is the is technically lower than he is. Way Um, lower. Yeah. And it's just it's a fascinating side by side of these two different characters where perception rules reality in this circumstance yeah and because what what else would it do like i i think the biggest thing to focus on here is the 
sort of uh, manipulation that the golds have built into the society itself, where they don't really offer any sort of alternative to that line of thinking. Because if they any any sort of alternative thoughts would lead to exactly what wiped out 90% of Ragnar's race. Right. Which is, I mean, obviously, but it's, it's disheartening in every way, shape and form because Ragnar has so much spirit that his, you know, in his own words, to some degree, he thinks Darrow shackled to his dreams and to be stripped of shackles just gives him different shackles, right? Like that's literally, I think what he says textually, like stripping my shackles gives me new ones. That said, when Darrow starts prying more, he gets down to the core sort of threatening fear that Ragnar feels. Ragnar feels, not Ragnar. Ragnar is the uh, the rye that I have behind me. <laughs> um, Ragnar, Ragnar feels essentially fear and th- threats of that sort of uh, line of thinking. But I, it, it's hard to tell if he's convinced himself of the sort of uh, rhetoric that he's been regurgitating or if he just never really put those connections together without prying Mm -hmm. but eventually after more and more sort of digging from darrow he gets to the sort of i've I've seen these sort of deceptions and i've seen an iron rain down and i've seen i've seen death and destruction from these kind of thoughts alternative thoughts yeah so it's it's It'd be interesting to see if he actually believes what he's been saying or if he is doing everything he can to convince himself in order to not get into a situation where he gets fucking obliterated by the golds. Yeah, yeah, it's man. And I feel like that is the gambit here, right? That's also like Darrow's whole blood brother gambit is like, I bleed the same color you bleed. We're the same. He kind of thinks it a trick. And then he tells like Darrow pours everything out there. I kind of wish it was all in dialogue. I I get that it'd be just kind of a repetition. It'd be be repetition instead of just saying I tell him everything. But I I really kind of wish. Yeah, I can I can understand that. I certainly think it would be. Interesting. I don't think that Ragnar would come off as shocked, you know, like even if we saw it in dialogue, I don't know what his reaction would be outside of maybe the occasional question. So how do you think they would do this in uh, film? Uh, I think it would you wouldn't even see the paraphrasing. He would just say something. This is this is very crude, but he would say something like I'm a red and then it would cut to a different scene. You know, it would be whatever that drop line is that would leave it with Ragnar. You cut to his expression unchanging, just kind of standing there. And then you cut to a different scene that wouldn't necessarily focus on Darrow, might focus on something or, else in the ship. Or just leave it at, what if I told you I was not? And then walks out of the freezer, you know? He could also drop that ultimatum right there as well. Yeah, I think you kind of need to have the the emphasis on the fact that he didn't, like, swear him to silence or anything like that. Mm-hmm. No, I, 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 I think, agree. I think you. that's an you're important right. thing to have. You're right. So I think the fr- I think you're right. So adding adding to what I said and adding into what you said, I think that the him walking away and saying, you know, basically the the freezer conversation of leave if you want to come and lead my men, tell if you want, you know, like that would be kind of the way to way to portray that. Unless Darrow himself is the narrator of the the is in sort of out of like if this is all if the Assuming it's a TV show, let's go under that assumption. If Darrow is the storyteller and narrator 
and you can kind it can kind of cut to uh, montage scenes with narration over it to kind of fill in these types of gaps. That could work, I guess. I think the tough part is, is if I were doing it, I wouldn't put in VO almost at all. I wouldn't do any voiceover. No, um, I, but or you very need, minimal. You need this though. You need his internal monologue. I think well, there's you, a lot of internal monologue, right? Right. The entire I, story. Don't don't get me wrong. I understand that the like fifty percent, sixty percent of the pages are internal monologue. I totally get it. I think that you could get away with it by telling story through showing things, showing experiences, and I think it would also flesh out strongly his experience back in the mind. It would. It would. It would take a very delicate hand, a very delicate. I think everything regarding the secrets takes a delicate hand. And I think the entire the entire show hinges around the premise of it being believable that people don't know really up until this point, you know, and now we only have two people that know. (laughs) Right. So, you know, I I think it totally takes a deft hand. And Aries, though. Right, right, right. That's the the thing is how many more uh, I guess we'll probably talk about this later, but I have some theories about Aries. Later, later parts in this section that revolve around maybe other operatives of the Sons of Ares. One final note on this section that I just wanted to bring up in terms of research um, and everything else is I, I really love the discourse here. Obviously, like I said, opening up to Ragnar, trusting him to help him build kind of this coalition of followers and be a leader. The line here on page 299 is slaves do not have the bravery of free men. And it feels like something literally torn straight from the pages of the first book. And obviously within the Institute post Mustang helping him out, the line that I found the most similar, most compelling, compelling, and especially true in the story right now came from chapter 35, page 282 to win I'll need an army, but it cannot be made of slaves. Not again. I now need as I'll need at the head of a rebellion followers, not slaves. And this is Darrow really kind of trying to get his first true non-gold follower. Because I think I think several would go anywhere with him. But so what's he talking about in in that book? So at that point in the, the discussion, that, is around what's happening at that point? The so to win, I'll need to build an army is him talking post. It's during the Oathbreaker chapter when there are those people who have fled and left and he needs to claim a standard. He can claim slaves but he hasn't fully gone back to claim any okay. of the other houses. Gotcha. So it's just him, Mustang, Milia, and one other person. Which Milia makes a return. She does. In she this? does show up. Yep. Horse face girl. Yes, horse face. Yep, exactly. <laughs> so uh, we move on from there to chapter 35, Tea Time. Mm, and Tea Time. Man is Tea Time, a great title for this chapter. I sort of love at the beginning of this chapter, the command and silent infiltration that happens when the party of golds go, go on to Invictus and board the ship. You know, it's, it's just so good. I also like the name Invictus. For yeah. A ship. Yeah. Invictus is great. Reminds me of, and Pierce Brown cites Warhammer 40 K as an inspiration to mostly the space stuff, but it totally reminds me of a, a name straight out of that. It also like Ragnar putting his hand on an orange, which literally like shoves him over and <laughs> telling yeah, him not to I, do anything and saying it, no. It, what is it? It says something along the lines of, oh, uh, here it is on uh, 301. A copper sees us and makes a deal of playing with his data pad. Ragnar slips up to him, touches his shoulder hard enough to push the man to his knees. No. <laughs> and like Severo makes fun. Like it's all it's all just kind of like it's cheeky. It's funny. It's 
it's like a spin on all of the classic shipboarding scenes that you see. Most of the other shipboarding scenes that you see, though, in like sci-fi, it's mostly like action-packed or violence, or they're shooting a couple of people. Then they're kind of playing around with the guards, or like you know, convincing mm-hmm. them with disguises or whatever. And this is just kind of a, a submission, kind of out of partial loyalty, because you know these people were Augustine; they still are Augustine. They're just under Pliny's command. Yeah, but at the same time, there is so much precedent of following whoever's actively in charge at the moment and fighting for them to the death. Right, right. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Like loyal the sort of Darrow makes a point of saying something along the lines of like going with the wind or whatever it is for the mm-hmm. for the golds, but that's out of fear and out of duty and whatever else. Like lust for same for all no 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 not lust for I, I'm saying for the other colors. Oh yeah. Out of out of duty and out of fear, it's kind of the same thing. They are following to the death whoever happens to sit in the captain's chair. Yeah, I mean, and they're not purely loyal, obviously, because they do literally stand down at the side of this invading party rather than die because they understand that loyalties are now shifting. You know, that that first orange that sees them when the when the Mm -hmm. doors open and Severo like she just she sits down. Yeah, and like, several ah, says wiser than a gold pats her on her head, right? Uh, yep, yep, he does. <laughs> it's just, just funny. It's it's just perfect. So yeah, it's, it's a great quiet scene. It's got quite intensity to it. I can totally see it being filmed and being counter like, man, I don't I don't want to say this like this isn't this book is not intended to be like a devil's advocate against a lot of sci fi tropes. But man, does it subvert them. Um, in some it ways it definitely and, does but it doesn't feel like it's actively trying to constantly you know what i mean no, like it's, it, it, it's not it, trying to pull it off it's it is in it's universe the tropes accurate. that are unrealistic and kind of dumb like it, it makes it more believable and realistic yeah definitely totally agree so from there we move into the scene uh with the jackal and freeing him and the other loyal golds <laughs> to to darrow's cause and i love the kind of like game that several plays with them <laughs> you know it's just good it's funny w- what a good abnormally tall and decrepit peerless you are <laughs> excellent lorn i found a possible bedmate <laughs> a bedmate yeah it's so good <laughs> so good um and making them kind of praise hail reaper is is funny you know four times and what have you thank the reaper thank the reaper thank the reaper and then the little game he plays with the eye what's in my pocket and it's Pliny's eyeball you know it's just it's good <clears throat> after freed though it's an interesting conversation between roke or like not roke but in between darrow and adrius kind of catching up on what had happened and roke is kind of observing this and not understanding where this kinship has come from considering they were enemies back at the institute the gulf grows i think that's a that's a comment here right or is that later on when other things are revealed that Roke didn't know. No, I'm pretty sure that's here. Okay. Where the Gulf grows. But it, it does consistently feel like the Gulf has been growing, exacerbating with like, minor relief. But Minor relief, but like at what point does Darrow sort of shrink it? Like he's going to have to soon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or something catastrophic, I think, could happen because Roke, Roke's got some fucking power in his station. It's tough. So I love that Ragnar so Sephiro, uh gets this gets this transponder hooked up and starts rhyming and, and singing songs of Pliny's doom over the intercom to everyone, which is just great. 
And the fact that Ragnar breaks the transponder that Severo is using because of his rhyming is fucking hilarious. Yes, but also, do you think he was trying to break the transponder because it missed his head by inches? I think Ragnar's probably good enough at throwing that he, if he intended to hit Severo's head, he would have hit Severo's head. Agreed. But, yeah. Yeah. I like, think that it was very close to being. I'd call it a warning fucking shot. Brutal. I'd call it a inches? warning shot. Inches is not a warning shot. I mean, for, for this society, I think it's a warning shot. <laughs> okay. But yeah, no, I, I feel you. It, it kind of lends a, a buddy cop comedy element to it, it in this moment it, that's which, true which it i kind of i like it's kind of funny i want the two i want severo and ragnar in a cop car together <laughs> oh my god <laughs> Who, um, who's the driver i think ragnar drives just because it would be really funny for his head to be poking out the sunroof you mean like me i mean basically yes do you remember when i would do that in high school I do I remember drive with my head out of the sunroof. Yes, because you are too big to fit in cars. In all honesty, too, the rhyming bit reminded me of you in that moment because you <laughs> despise my rhyming. No, I despise your rhyming because it's not actually fucking rhyming. Yeah, but you like near rhymes, near rhymes, you insist that near rhymes count as rhymes. They do. Not. They're not. They do count as rhymes. So you, okay, your near rhymes are not good enough to be near rhymes. Then. Ouch. So one of the things that I really like here as well, and I thought you might really like, is the uh, the description of the Leechcraft thermal drill, right? Yes. Neat. It was definitely neat. I still want more. Like, I, I still want more description of the actual mechanics and how it works. But that said, this was actual physical description and I am very, very happy with definitely it. fair. I definitely I, I also have been doing a little bit of review in terms of description as it comes to the individual presences of writing. So like first person versus third person and the different first person implications as well as the different first person implications and the style in which this first person book is written is not apostle or is apostolary, which means that. They're not going to describe as much because they think that you can pick up on it. That's not to say it's a cure-all. It is definitely an art choice. It is a form choice that Pierce Brown made. But I got it more when I started to read some of the descriptions of the differences between first-person perspectives. Like if if you think to if you think to like Polinick, Polinick will describe something very intimately because of the way that he writes and reflects on things. And the way that he relates things are things that you also relate to. So he will go through and say, do you remember that girl that you were pining after in elementary school? Here's what her locker combination was. You remember that because you were drooling on the locker one day and it, it stuck to your teeth. And that's why you, it's just all the stupid shit that he does. Right. He connects things yeah. through physical and relatable moments versus this is not relatable and so but it is written in that same sort of style and format so it assumes that you know as though you were there or as though you are in line with him that makes sense it makes sense but still i'm not i'm not excusing it i'm just saying that's the format yeah cool no it i get it i totally get it and i'm fine with it but god i want more (laughs) well hopefully we get a tv series but don't don't worry about it yeah yeah, don't worry about it. We'll get to see it Fair in all of its glory. And now in the chambers with Pliny, after those moments, obviously him dropping in dramatically on the thermal drill into the center of the table with hundreds of gold surrounding him. We're in the chambers with Pliny sitting on the throne, which is just kind of fine, funny. Um, we get an answer as to who the Furies are. 
You know, out of all of the answers, out of all the questions, this is not one that I thought would have been answered right now, but it does kind of make sense. We find out that the Furies are really kind of the daughters of the Ash Lord. They're all Algrimuses. We've got Moira and we've got Aja. We've not been introduced to the third sister as of yet. I'm pretty sure this information has already been said this was a lot more explicit about it though maybe maybe it was just kind of hinted at but i i feel like it's been mentioned that the furies were the daughters of the ash lord yeah yeah or at the very least they were confidants right no 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 I, i'm, pr- well, I'm they, pretty they were- sure it said that because i it didn't come as new information to me when it said that yes okay all right i all don't right. know Something we didn't talk about, though, that I think makes sense to mention right now is, too, is that the Furies were the ones who exacted divine retribution of those guilty for wrongdoing, you know, crimes in particular and whatnot. So it is kind of it it makes sense that they are the exacting family, you know, even if you look at like the the Ash Lord himself um, and pile them all together, you know, they're they're Mm -hmm. kind of the the arm of justice to some degree of the sovereign. Right. They are, I mean, yeah, that they're definitely the enforcers. Yeah. They are the they're the muscle. Mm-hmm. And and see like now we know like obviously Aja is the physical muscle. Moira, who we're sort of more introduced to here, is the political muscle. And the third one, which we haven't been exposed to yet, is hmm, I wonder what kind maybe uh judicial? Yeah, I, guess I mean that's that might make sense. Political or, I I, th- uh, I think you are onto something. I think you are totally onto something with your theory. Okay, so we'll we'll keep like they, that. They all have their special specialization and uh, definitely are sort of important ties. Not something I immediately picked up on um, in any of my now three reads. So uh, great work. All right, it's not something Good that job. I immediately connected. Is that they were all kind of different exacting arms in their own ways. Moira is sort of the the plump politician of the group, and obviously Aja is the the sort of brutal executioner. So it's uh, mm-hmm. it's interesting. So, yeah. <clears throat> what did you think of the sort of quiet contempt in the room, as well as the execution of Pliny as Darrow kind of walked through the room back and forward, commanding respect? What did you think of that? Darrow knows how society works and how high society goals work. He was he was very confident, I feel like, that he could go in, have a show of force and uh, not have to really do anything in order to get his desired outcome. And he did. It's exactly how it went. Yeah. Darrow has proven proven himself to be sort of a master of understanding a master of psychology almost. At least within the society. For sure, like polit- like manipulation, sociological manipulation or psychological. Manipulation. It's, it's more just, uh, I, I, guess, I guess it could be argued that it's manipulation, but at a certain point, it's just kind of playing his cards in a way that he knows will produce a desired outcome. If that's manipulation, I guess, yes, but he's not. He's not really changing people's minds or changing what people think about anything. He He's just playing into what he knows they think about. Definitely. It is it is a fascinating concept. And I'm really glad that it's explored here, you know, especially among all of these golds who are formerly loyal to, you know, 
the Martian rule. And so it's really interesting that they even like go so far as to kill each other when he's like, do not violate within the two meter rule. He's like, ah, oh, really close. <laughs> You're really close. <laughs> yep. Yeah. It's, it's just so crazy to like see that one man totally knifed down by a guy. Is this the first time where we really explicitly get a description of their unit of measurement? Or is this the only the first time that I really took note of it? Are you saying meters? Yeah, meters. First time you took yeah. note of it, because we actually had a discussion in the first book where we talked about how there was a disparate moment where they described uh, how tall something was in feet as well as how long something or how far something was away in meters. Okay. there It was within the same paragraph and we made mention of it being strange, but... Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, I think I remember that. Never mind. Yeah. All, all good. All good. So, <laughs> yeah, it's it's fascinating. Plenty dies a shitty death because he's a shitty person getting killed anonymously here, which is why you drank at the beginning of the episode. Yep. Um, and it's uh, it's excellent. Yeah, they don't even wait for him to leave. Yeah, no, like, they just fucking kill him. Darrow is now the person that's in charge in the eye. Like, he's the more powerful person in the eyes of the uh, the people in the room. And even the Olympic Knight talks to someone else. I can't remember. And they're like, ah, nope, we're not going to bother trying to save this dude. Like, fuck him. Yeah, the Olympic Knight from the Japan Isle um, was cool. I think it was the Storm Knight, if I remember correctly. Yep, Storm Knight. Yep. Yep. yep, yep, yep. Very cool. Very cool. Kind of like just way to tuck in the description there. And it kind of makes you, I don't know, like even just saying that it's Japanese kind of harkens an image of sort of the, the samurai like mm. sword and appearance and everything. And I just immediately kind of had this idea that he had his hand on his sword hilt, you know, his right hand just sitting there on the hilt. Ready to draw. You, you, you want to know what I imagined? Have you seen Big Trouble in Little China? No, oh, you're fired. You're fired. <laughs> I know that's one of your favorite movies. So. Yeah, I love that. I love that movie. I really yeah. do. But um, just the uh, protector that deals with lightning. Mm-hmm. Yep. 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 That's what I imagined. I imagined Definitely. him as the Storm Knight. Fair. Hey, you know, like, I mean, you think I think Mortal Kombat and Raiden, right? Like, yeah, I mean, Kombat it's essentially Raiden, what it was. It, it's yeah. essentially Raiden. Yeah. Right. I kind of I get a weird mental image that, you know, society is put in my brain. So way to go, marketers. Um, at the very end of this chapter, after Plenty's death, <laughs> Darrow calls for it. And it is an iron rain. Yes. Um, I'm actually going to take a drink here because of your prediction that you made several episodes ago into what an iron rain was. I believe yeah, it was I, at the I beginning think we of talked to we talked about it before we really established these sort of prediction games. Or at the very least, didn't set it as a prediction. But you asked me what Iron Rain meant. Yeah. And I think I essentially nailed it. I said Iron Gold. Yeah. um, Raining down from the heavens, like orbital, like ODSTs, I think is probably exactly what I talked about. That was that was a yeah. So that was in relation to the star shells, more or less. But it was even before that you predicted the Iron Rain. No worries. Yeah. So. Moving on from that, we move into chapter 36, Lord of War. This chapter is really kind of the calm before the storm um, of the the rest, the next like two-ish chapters. Um, and it, it kind of just is sort of the piecemeal time preparation. You know, I can really break this down into three thoughts. It's preparation, motivation, and the rituals associated with golden warfare. Mm-hmm. So this chapter is chock full of subtle hints um, that pay off as the combat flows in the following chapters. But I wanted to ask how you experienced that as you read it. Did you pick up on any of them? Um, not not particularly. Like, what? what which ones? What are you? What are you? 
sort of so one of them is one of them is the sons of Aries being key to the plan right in some way shape or form there's that conversation that happens there's another conversation with victra in which the fleet turning is going to be an important turning point it doesn't say fleet, did but not did not pick up on that yeah so that surprised me those are like two or three. There's one obvious one that's there where he speaks with the jackal, but that's really the only one that's truly fully fleshed out in text. Just that's not just a single communication. Line. Yep. Or, yep. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. That didn't seem to be really hidden. Right. Right. The rest of them are anything. very yeah. like just on just barely on the surface. They're just all barely there. Um, yeah. I, I did a second listen through with the audiobook and I picked up on it at that point, but. First, first read through. No, did not. Yeah, I I really like the description of the shielded cities and kind of all of the internal dialogue around Mars in general. They're on Phobos, which is one of the moons. That's where they're doing all of their prep. And they're they're thinking and talking about Ward. It's just excellent. You know, the the world building and description just gets me as well as Darrow's rousing speech. I mean, some moments of that, especially in the audio book, jerk this guy off until we die um, (laughs) is just so good. (laughs) Yeah. I will. Uh, I will have his babies. He's fifty. Science allows it. I googled it. He's fifty-one. He sounds like he's like eighty, like an old man. But he's not at he's all. Still, he's still sexually viable. Then virile. Yes, he's virile. <laughs> wow. Anyway, um, sorry, Tim Gerard Reynolds. No, I'm not sorry. Please uh, impregnate me with your babies. So that's what it means. Yes, yeah, that's what I, it means. Crossland. I caught that. I caught that. I, I just. <laughs> I just, love. <laughs> I was just extending it. I took it too far. You you overexplained. Yes, that is that is my duty in life is to overexplain. We need to make sure he hears. We need to like cut out all of the parts where we talk about him and like just send him. We could an we could make drop. a Tim Gerard Reynolds supercut. <laughs> <laughs> um, it'd be like. 10 or 15 minutes at this point. It probably would be. So let's let's move on and talk about <laughs> the Jackal Adaro's plans. So getting into the Jackal Adaro's plan, um, which is like knocking out communication. I, I find I find the comment after the plans to be the most interesting, which is where Darrow kind of pins him as a perhaps a different man than he originally thought because of him helping and trying to save Quinn and um because of everything else that he's done and Jackal responds with doubtful, but tomorrow a traitor will be King and an empress shall be a traitor. So maybe wicked men can be virtuous and he can like, it, it's so ominous. Mm, yes, but I can't, I still can't take anything that he says at face value. He is such a wordsmith and so crafty, shifty. I, I, I don't trust really anything that he says. Clearly, like, and and I, I don't think I'm meant to. I don't think I don't think he's meant to be a trustworthy character. Mm-hmm. But I, I definitely am hesitant to believe anything that he ever says, or to take it at any sort of face value. Sure. So I'm I'm a little bit skeptical of what he means there, or what he's getting at there. Sure, I definitely track that. So I, man, it is. It's a lot to parse through, but there's also all of the like various rituals that happened that happened over the course of this chapter. The two that I find maybe the most intriguing are obviously the whites and their kind of speech and their sort of we we haven't really seen whites, you know? And so this is kind of a 
first sort of impression, his first what, big what impression. Is their, what is their station? They're sort of in, in charge society? of ritual and kind like you wouldn't like necessarily call it religion, but yeah, they're they're sort of the the superstition. Spiritual. Yeah, yeah. They're an upper tier color, but they're not like high. They're like priests and priestesses, the rituals, you know, tradition, that kind okay. of thing. Okay. Useless color. Uh huh. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> yep. Sorry. Uh but this sort of ritual that takes place definitely gave me vibes and like visual thoughts of the Lord of the Rings and hmm. sort of the elves being I don't even know if it's like an actual scene in the movies. I'm I think it is. And like I can see it in my mind, but it's been so long since I've like paid really, really close attention to all of the movies that I can't exactly remember. But I feel like there's a scene where a bunch of the female elves come out and I'm I'm guessing kiss their husbands and like pray and like bless them for good luck with within battle, something like that. Mm-hmm. But. Just the visuals that are laid out here reminded me of something that could happen within the sort of Lord of the Rings or even just more vaguely fantasy warfare scenes, I guess. It it does kind of harken back to that. I think the the, like interesting ad here that I don't see in a lot of other fiction to any degree, like you were saying, is the speaking of names, the, the like saying that these are wanted names is kind of a new premise and an interesting kind of ritual to go on before battle. To kind of encourage people to go after specific targets. Yeah. Um, and I guess almost it's almost a meditation of stay on focus, stay on target. Like the, these are our primary objectives. And obviously there will be people in the way for that. And yeah. Yeah. That makes know. sense. Like it, it's it's a process of Uh, mentally visualizing what the goals are. How did you feel about Roke being in charge of the fleet and kind of the, the sort of like makeup and come to terms that happened? They didn't fully come to terms, obviously, but what do you, what heart, what feelings do you think like Roke harbors? He seems very forgiving for the most part, especially on the sort of um, private comms with, what Mustang and Victra and Severo and Darrow. Yeah. Where he says, I love you all. And they're all kind of awkward about that. Other than Darrow. Like he, he Roke is definitely more of a, um, touchy feely kind of person, which could mean he's a little bit more forgiving than most golds, but could also mean that he's just kind of living in the moment of his emotions and even if they're complicated and even if they're sort of overshadowed by something frustrating and negative he'll allow he'll he'll allow the positivity and the the love to shine through in the moment if if it's what's necessary definitely more of a uh optimist hmm. in that sense looking okay. at the bright side okay that's interesting because obviously he's been pretty negative about like Quinn and Leah, but but that's not in a dire situation. Like th- this, this is kind of a situation where he he knows that there's a high risk of him losing at least one of the people that he's talking to, if not all of them, or himself. And he, it seems like he is in those situations somebody that puts everything aside and speaks the deep down 
feelings that he has for those people. Yeah, I think what's very, very interesting about Roke is that he's one of the more we kind of get a larger depth of perspective of him throughout like the first two books, obviously, because he's so close with Darrow, right? And this gulf builds over time and he does have that sort of he's got the the ability to see through and kind of be that happy go lucky guy, like you said. And he also has the ability to kind of see the reality that other people are missing where, you know, with Victra, for instance, in the previous section, where he's like, what we need to stop arguing about Victra. Victra has proven her worth. My family is worse than hers is. We're just secretly political. So right. found that interesting. Yeah, he he's he's definitely looking on the bright side yeah. of everybody. I, I love how at the end of this chapter as well, Lauren turns to Darrow and pays him compliment for how the people follow him and says that in the end now he kind of regrets killing Tactus. He doesn't necessarily think that it was right. It was his it was based on his understanding, kind of like you said in the beginning here. But he kind of comes around to it saying, like, you lead a different breed of people and maybe you do inspire some kind of hope. This made me wonder, like, what time frame are we looking at between when they had the previous conversation and now? Like, is it a couple weeks? Is it a couple months? It never mentions it. And in my reading of this, it was only... It was less than 10 pages between when he was adamant that people can't change to when he like apologizes. You're right and I'm wrong shifted very, very quickly from I'm right and you're wrong. And I'm sure there was a delay there, but it doesn't because because they assemble a fleet and position themselves ready to uh, bombard the planet between there without really any dialogue or any mention of it. But in in my first read through, for sure, I was really confused by how quickly he sort of turned 180 from what he was saying only a few pages before. So reading through and doing a little bit of research on that specific opinion, it looks like the time frame is about a week over the course. That's not a great amount of time. It's also no, not but too it's, small. It's of a better time. than like an hour. Yeah, right. Which is what um, it felt like in the in in the context of reading it for the first time. It felt like no time at all had passed. Definitely true. Could do with a little bit more. And I I think of this generally throughout the series. Like there are moments where it does great with the passage of time. And there are moments where it's kind of just questionable. Like it doesn't Mm -hmm. it doesn't say enough or it's easy to skip over and miss entirely. So I agree with you here. The the Ragnar bit comes three days after they leave Europa with Lorne. And that kind of sets up that as the timeline before moving in with plenty and whatnot. And that's over the course of a week. So it all happens in February as well. Not that that yes. matters. Um, it doesn't. <laughs> so starting off, uh, we have chapter 37 war that we move into, which I find it kind of, hmm, I find it kind of an anticlimactic title because it feels like it's talking about war a lot of the time and kind of the preparation and sort of the friendly banter over the calm is kind of like the last seconds before war, not so much the war itself. Yeah, I don't know. I, like looming war or like um, something like that would have, yeah, would have been better. It's the only chapter that I feel like is mistitled, actually, like actively, you know, especially considering the next one is like much more about war. <laughs> um, what what did you make of though? right off the bat of Darrow questioning if Ares is real or not? It was finally like this is something that we've been talking about since essentially the introduction of the character of Ares 
And it was really satisfying to actually get that question posed within the within the book itself. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like that was that was something that was kind of missing. It seemed like an obvious question to ask, and it was never like nobody asked it. <laughs> right, Darrow right. never asked it internally or externally to anybody. So, yeah, I think thematically it totally feels on point too because. Darrow doesn't and and Severo kind of makes a point of this, obviously, with his big grandstanding where he hops on top and howls and all of the sigils come down and everything else. It kind of shows to some degree that like Ares doesn't matter as much as Darrow matters now. Right. Do you think that was kind of the aim of Ares if Ares is a person? Mm, I could. mm, I don't think Ares aim was ever to be the important figure. If Ares is okay. a singular person, yeah. I don't think is like the the entire point was never to have any sort of power. It was always to make social change. Um, so to that effect, I think it makes more sense to not seek any sort of power and to promote individuals that will create that social change. So it, I guess as a direct answer to that question is yes, that is Ares' aim, but I don't think it was directly to promote Darrow as the guiding light as opposed to the end goal of where that will lead. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Okay. I also love Jupiter's return here throughout the rest of this part. You know, he's, he's kind of a great voice to actually hear from and kind of have back in from the first book. It's funny to kind of get the moment where Severo makes fun of him for his limp in a similar yeah. way because of Fitchner and Severo both like hitting the same knee ass ass. Well, yeah. Hammy. No, no, they, no. They uh, struck him up. Old man sliced him up the same place I did right in the ass. All right. Well, there you go. There <laughs> right it is folks. End of three, two, one. <laughs> <laughs> His goal of helping Darrow kill the Bolenos after functioning as a spy is also wonderful in this chapter. It's just, it kind of mm-hmm. feels whole in a way with the first book. Yeah, there there's definitely there hasn't been a big rift in like in gold society that we've seen, but I think it makes total sense to have a lot of sort of double agents within this society acting, uh, acting as spies or uh, just kind of unsuspecting information disseminators. Yeah, informants is the word you were looking for. (laughs) information disseminators that's great we'll forever recall that one <laughs> um but you you got it yep. across it just wasn't efficient yep <laughs> um, that's what i mean i i totally agree with you i think that it's very interesting it it's also because of the fact that they're martian you know it's kind of a there's a gambit right now if you're octavia with the martians right you have said gambit so many goddamn times yeah, it's it's super stupid the too last because <laughs> I I understand. I watched that TV series, the one that which not will not be named. Um, Why? Even though I okay, you so I watched the Queen's it. I watched the Queen's Gambit long before we started Golden Sun, the book. Um, I'd finished it before then. So how how am I still saying Gambit? Why am I still saying Gambit? I don't know. Gambit though, growing up was my favorite X Man. So like, yeah. Gambit, I have a problem. Um, I'll, I'll accept my problem. So, chapter 38, The Iron Rain. 
Honestly, this is like one of my favorite chapters of action ever. It reminds me of Catch-22 in the sort of like brutal depiction of war, of being like this beautiful and grotesque thing that only war can be. And it's just, it's great. I, I love this bit. Just sort of the cold view of the beauty of the burning bodies. I mean, to some degree, I I feel like Catch-22 provides a humorous lens over top of war, right? And it, it sort of, but it also paints it in a very real manner, right? Where he like realizes what's going on around him and he's very aware of it. And he just wants it out. And there's no like Darrow, Darrow very much wants this war, but there are moments that are reflective of that same feeling in Catch-22. Darrow wants the resolution of whatever conflict involved like i don't think he wants the war itself correct correct he wants the resolution of the rebellion in which society stands is no longer and all are equal yeah this is kind of a necessary step yep right this this series now that we're this deep is really about rebellion more than anything else and and sowing discontent within gold society Right, right. I'm I'm just speaking sort of generally to the, right, the overall. Yeah. But yeah, yeah but I, I think they're two very separate but focused things that will ultimately lead to the same goal, but Yeah, totally true. Um, yeah, he's he's kind of disrupting things. So, I really kind of, look kind of disrupting things by causing of. a fucking civil war. Only civil war, only a whole planet rebelling, you know? No big deal. Mhm. Only stealing ships from the Ash Lord, the most terrifying man to have ever supposedly existed inside of this universe. We haven't met him yet, though, so like, whatever. He could be, he could be a nobody. Mm, yeah, maybe he's <laughs> just dust at this point. Could just be dust. I really he's, like. He's the Lord of Ashes. It, true, true. Yes, good point. You were totally meeting me there, and I missed it. It's mm. good. Good work. Clever, clever girl. <laughs> <laughs> I like the initial dialogue that Darrow gives here as well and kind of points to how ridiculous it could have been to see him try to accomplish all these little things like boarding this ship to go there to do this to do that instead of the massive scope of the battle and how specific his task is like the, this battle is incredible. There's no way that he is going to I don't know be like Anakin Skywalker fly shoot a bunch of ships land on a ship climb up the air shaft kill Dooku go down to the ground solve the problem on the ground etc. You know, like that's not realistic. It's kind of, you know, it's 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 cool to see this be very real and grounded in that way where it's like I'm not going to be the hero who does 12,000 things. Mm-hmm. Instead, exactly. I count on my lieutenants to like do them. Right. And I mean, that's that's what makes sense. And that's how war works. So conflict works on a large scale in general. So Darrow gets launched out of the spit tube, which is obviously a glorious, glorious moment. And. On page 327, the description of the violent warfare between these ships in the, that single paragraph is just breathtaking. I can literally almost perfectly imagine this being adapted frame for frame. It's just so clear in my head. You get that narrow view on the inside of the helmet, kind of like Iron Man pointing at Darrow, kind of panicking inside as he's he's wrestling with everything that's going on. Maybe a smidge of VO, maybe just him breathing. And then you pan out into from his headset into the battlefield engulfed in silent conflict where, you know, all these ships are boarding each other and everything's happening. Mm-hmm. But it's just completely silent as you watch all of this. No doubt CGI mayhem go on. No, I think it's all practical effect. Well, I mean, I would hope so. I think they do it for real. You know, Tom Cruise is filming a movie in space. Maybe it's Red Rising. Mm, yeah. 
but I mean, in general, like this is going to be the first film. I don't think so. Intentionally, leave me alone. I had a good comment. <laughs> out of out of space. Sounds like a good time. They're going to have to replace Darrow as, a, as no. the actor because he's going to get shot in the tube. He's going to hit the planet and then explode. No, he'll survive it. If he doesn't, they'll reshoot the movie or TV show with whatever whatever actor can survive it. That sounds cheap, hey. as in inexpensive. This is art. Okay. Art is paid for with blood. Everyone knows that. Wow. Wow. All right. So getting back into it, uh, <laughs> page 327. Yeah. You know, like, like I said, the, the battle is so beautiful. We, we move into kind of the atmosphere and him falling through the atmosphere. We lose one of the howlers, Harpy, it, who's been described throughout this book in, in sort of a, a violent and simple way, which is incredible. Just kind of showing how indiscriminate war is to Darrow. And that's where I really think it, it harkens back to the catch 22 thing where you meet the, these like group of people and they're all getting kind of picked off one by one, but you know them just as people. But when they're flying the planes, they're enemies to whoever's on the ground. So it feels very much that same way where we, we know these characters, we know these people and it's just luck that Darrow makes it through to some degree. Like it it is dumb luck that he makes it through this iron rain. It's, Mm -hmm. it's crazy. We also see an incredible one of my I think maybe even my favorite bit from this this book is the bit about the soldier that's flying next to him. His exo exoskeleton sheds its friction armor as Lucifer might have shed the fetters of heaven. Feathers of flame peeling off, fluttering behind. Then a missile slashes the sky and high grade explosives christen him mortal once again. That entire paragraph is just fucking insane. It's like it's I I loved it. Perfectly written. It's perfect. Yeah. Yeah, that was um, it also gave me, especially on the second sort of. So I read it and then I listened to it. Um, The listen through the second sort of experience of it made me think of the comparison to Icarus, his secondary call sign. Not in that that's what happened to Icarus, but in that there is burning feathers, which I, I felt was very interesting, but also just the, the fact that that was its call sign seemed odd. And I, I'm curious, I, I don't have any sort of solid thoughts on why Icarus would be a good call sign for him, because it, it feels like the implications of that call sign would be negative and um, like he's overreaching and flying too close to the sun as it were and maybe that's i would the point he's in, he's intentionally sort of being a little bit reckless and flying too close to the danger of the society itself i i can see that angle but it didn't end well for icarus well that does leave it ominous the way that you just painted that but i do agree <laughs> with you i feel like it is kind of a a backwards overconfident reading right where okay let's just let's paint a picture of Roke assigning additional call signs or like a Mustang or any other character. They might jokingly assign him something like Icarus, right? Cause he always pushes the boundary. And the question is, is when are you going to fall? Yeah. So I, I do, I do totally agree with your read. I just feel like the extra layer on top of that is they probably did it sarcastically, but I do think it's very real <laughs> in, in the way that you <laughs> it said it's definitely real. Like there it is dipping or dripping with truth. And uh, irony. Oh, yeah, definitely. 
So after the landing, we get some confrontation of knocking out various fortified positions and some quick bursts of combat and strategy until we're finally presented with information that makes Darrow's plan clear, his assumptions clear, that the Sovereign is on Mars. Um, yes. Yes, she is. I... I don't know if I don't know if I believe it yet. You don't know if she, so, you believe that she's there. Yes, because what they're sort of basing this off of primarily is the the radiation signatures from the explosions from Lauren's home planet, home moon, whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. Um, is it technically a moon? Lauren's moon. Is it a, is it a moon or is it, it is a, a moon? It's a moon. It's also okay. not his home moon. He's actually from Mars, but it is well, his I, I, home as in where yes. he yep. okay. has set up his home and where yep. he actively lives. Got it. Um, they've discussed radiation bomb, like radiation tracking and following previously. And they've discussed the sovereign having the technology to follow radiation signatures when they were when they were talking about Mustang's craft or I guess that was Pliny, but either way, it's it's a well enough established technology of being able to follow radiation signatures. And I don't believe Aja would be so naive as to leave without knowing that that signature could be traced. So there, there's, I, God damn it, I have so many fucking theories of what's going on here, and they're at odds with each other, but. I'm there's something pulling at me to believe that Aja is here and the sovereign is not and they are doing everything everything they can to make it look like the sovereign is. I think that that is a great take and I don't want to confirm nor deny your well, thoughts. Of course. Like I, but I don't want you to. Like man, I want to read the book and learn for myself. Right right, but That's man oh the man entire fucking point. I but, leave me alone. <laughs> The, the point being, though, that like I am glad that you are wrapped up in this mystery because I think it's intended to be that way. A Lamau. Yep. So with that, we move into the last chapter of the evening. Chapter 39 at the wall. Yes. So the team groups for planning after making landfall and whatnot. It's kind of nice, I think, to some degree to be back in the Valley of the Institute from book one uh, being back near Aegea in Valeris. God, what is it? Valeris. Back in the valley. Uh, <laughs> Valeris Valley. But yeah, I mean, back back there, it's it's really great. It really shows kind of this, how the story is completely shifted and changed. Like it has completely moved on from the sort of Hunger Games-esque story that we got. I mean, it's not, it's not, that's not a good comparison, I think, but it's completely different now. It's evolved. Like it has very rapidly evolved from semi- human conflict as we know it now like it was very it was very human very grounded what they were dealing with in the institute like it was warfare as we know it now or maybe 50 to no 100 to 200 years ago yeah uh, with, with a little bit more modern technology which um kind of brings me to a question which I, I, I'd like to sort of discuss, and I'm sure there's a reasonable answer, but the razors being sort of the primary weapon of choice for golds seems odd. With with all the technology that they're 
that they have at their disposable, why why deal with something melee combat focused as opposed to guns, something longer ranged? I get that they're fast and they're big and they're strong and whatever, but range is range range is something that kind of equalizes everyone in that sense. Like it doesn't fucking matter if you're faster than everyone else if you can still get shot in the head so is it is it something to do with the fact that razors are the only thing that can really pierce pulse armor and they haven't figured out a way to turn the razor technology into projectiles or is it more ceremonial and uh traditional to use a razor and they just kind of they are the sort of revolutionary war or civil war style heroes and leaders that hold swords while everyone else has muskets it, it seems you know, odd to me i i think it's it's a combination of the two things that you cited right like there is a natural sort of tradition to the razor which is to but, say but, that the but hear hear me out we we talked about it before Lorne is one of the few people or the only people discussed that has killed a stained without a razor, meaning that the razor is something very important, very strong and very valuable. So w- would defeating a stained not count if you shot them? Like, how, how, so, did, how does that make like I, I'm trying to sort of wrap my hand around. Yeah, so so there are a couple of points, and I definitely, I totally see where you're coming from on the front of does this make sense with sort of the way that the world is, right? So making sense of the Razor in a world in which giant plasma weapons and all of these artillery exist and various things like that, there's there's a lot of kind of questions that I certainly understand. Um, So there, there are two different types of armor that are kind of discussed throughout. One is recoil armor, and the other is pulse armor, right? So mm-hmm. they're they're both resistant to general plasma or ion attacks until the shield is overwhelmed and then it the battery breaks down basically right so if you take too many hits it overheats and then the battery's toast and you can die but a razor okay. can pierce that right and golds move faster on average than any other color and because of their training and art style it makes sense for them in con in certain contexts to use this. But more often than not, like we're seeing in this chapter, golds are wielding razors, sure, but they're wielding razors in an offhand or an onhand with an offhand that is an ion cannon or a giant blaster. Okay. In their star shells. So, like, it, it's a weird... It, so, extrapolating it just a step back, on the battlefield, the razor is a differentiator for golds because they can get close where other colors don't have that capability up close except for obsidians, in which case they're like fighting with their fists or, you know, I think that's pretty much it as far as we're described. Obsidians have the ability to kind of fearsomely fight with their fists and daggers and other things like that. But golds predominantly have razors as a weapon that can kind of also like bend around terrain and it can form various shapes um, as you kind of train it to. You know, it's it is a giant question mark. I do agree with you. I don't think it's terribly well described, but I think the other part of Razor is totally the tradition that you're talking about. It is, I mean, Cravat, the Willow Way, all of those are kind of reminiscent of the tradition of dueling. And so the Razor is sort of wielded as this weapon that describes the right to rule. And I think that's textual in the first book. Like the reason that Golds, Golds are the only people that are allowed to wield Razors 
and it is their like symbol of the right to rule. It is okay. like a it is a weapon above, but it's not it's not the biggest gun, you know. Like it it is a specific tool. Right. They wear it as belts most of the time, you know. Like that's that's how they casually talk about it. It's like a belt. Yeah, I Darrow's weird because he wears it on his arm, right? Which is described as dangerous and like reckless. But if it's worn as a belt, that's even more reckless, right? Um, like if if there's the threat of being of of your arm being like severed by the razor being wrapped around it, isn't that even more like reckless to have it around your torso? I think it was less around that type of recklessness, so as it was the ability. No, to no, 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 it was it, no, no, so, no. It was it was explicitly mentioned. That is reckless. Yep. No, no, no. That that your arm could be dismembered by wearing it that way. Yeah, I mean, these hips don't lie, and so I assume they could take a little bit more, but yeah. No, but in in, in a semi-real answer. Um I agree with you. I'm not saying it's any better to wear it around the waist. I I don't I don't necessarily see it as that much better, but textually when when that was described, there's clearly something different. Like on the waist. Yep. I I saw it or I imagined it as kind of like wrapped up like a lasso and hanging off of one side of the hip. Yes. And that like is now, actually in, in, instead of as a as a as a belt more as you're right. You're right. It It yeah. is worn traditionally as like a loose sash or as like a on the side of the hip. You're 100 okay. percent correct. I am. Um, I read that wrong. I'm looking at okay. the Wikipedia page right now. Take me gotcha. out. Um, but yeah, sash uh, seems even worse, though. Well, as a loose sash. OK. And that know. was that was a popular that was a popularized form similar to the forearm considered dangerous. Gotcha. Yeah. Anyway, stupid, stupid facts. I, I do agree with you, though. I think the razor is an interesting conversation. And I do, I do think it lends itself to an interesting conversation about sci fi and fantasy and all these weird weapons and such. Like if you have guns, why would you use laser swords? And it's. Because laser swords are cool. Just kidding. That's not the reason here. I do feel like that happens occasionally in Star Wars. It happens uh, a lot in Star Wars. By comparison, right? And so I think that Severo, for instance, and and Darrow, neither of them are afraid to use guns. I just don't think we've been presented with enough opportunities where they would. Severo has used, and so has Darrow, in the boarding of the packs, the now packs. Um use their plasma weapons so yeah um can they really wield their razors in their star suits though star shells yeah it's i mean it's just a hand right if you think about like the avatar robots it's just like a thing but it's not as it's not as smooth like they describe the general actions of the star shells as yes definitely quicker than what we perceive mechs to be but not completely smooth yeah like it 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 felt to me and i feel like we talked about this whenever what was it last episode i don't know um it felt to me a lot more like the titans in titanfall yep to a smaller smaller extent but like it it is they are kind of using the weapons that are built into that star shell right yeah yeah they're double people not full-on titans you know right yeah, we did talk about we did discuss this because <laughs> double people is a most ridiculous <laughs> way to describe what's going on. It's, but it's fine. True. 
I, I really like the conversation that Jupiter keeps trying to have about force and forcing their way into Aegea. The idea of using the greys as lubricant basically to make it their way into the city, carve through everyone else, and kind of Mustang's refusal to do so. Because mm-hmm. that is that is totally a warrior's line of thought. That is an accurate way to think about it from a warrior's well, it's perspective. A, it, but. It's a tactician's line of thought. Like it's, it's not thinking of the individuals. It's thinking about the entire war knowing that they're going to lose people and trying to sort of dictate who what lives get lost as a means of assisting the more important lives in following their goals mm-hmm. like it's definitely the more logical the more blue way of thinking about war yeah it's it is a whole and i genuinely agree with him in that sort of respect well i i think that jupiter is left out of information to a certain to a certain extent like right jupiter is left out of information like he does not know about this like plan or path right but neither does mustang right correct and she's still arguing against him in that yeah because she doesn't want to she she wants to kind of like wait and see to some degree and Mustang is not a perfect it, tactician no, by any no, no, means. No, 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 but it also seemed like she was trying to save every single life. And that's not a realistic way to look at this sort of warfare. It, it seems short-sighted from her point of view. I'd agree. Yeah, it, it definitely is short-sighted. It's not a perfect... She's she's more into... I, I don't think she's so much concerned about... She is definitely concerned about the lives of the people that they would lose. But I think she's more concerned about the lives of the people of Aegea. The 20 million people that live there. Um, But also that seems to be more um, proof that she would be open to a conversation with Darrow about who he actually is and the way he actually thinks. We'll talk about that in a second. Yeah. Okay. I I do. I do agree with you, though. I think that that is kind of an opening. It's an inroad. It shows her belief. We've we've had conversations about her being Democratic and otherwise. Right. But before we get there, I want to I want to talk about this real quick. There's a line where Darrow says once more onto the breach, uh, which is an abbreviation of a line from Henry V from Shakespeare. Completed, the line reads, once more unto the breach, dear friends, once more. It's talking about like the, reflecting on sacrificing friends to make a goal. And, you know, in particular here, I think Pierce Brown basically takes that line and extrapolates it and puts on the weight of all of the friends that he's lost to get here. All the friends that Darrow's lost to get here. And he does a great job of taking that line and, and turning it into something incredible, I think. Yeah. Darrow's lost a lot of fucking people. Yeah. Like it, it, and it, it definitely weighs on him more than he really externally lets out. But he is, uh, he is a man of pretty heavy emotion, even though he puts on a face of stone, essentially. And uh, yeah, he, he feels for those that he's lost, especially at essentially his own decision making. Right, right. And he doesn't specifically, I should say, Daru doesn't specifically cite any other friend that he's lost outside of Tactus. And you could consider maybe the gulf between him and Roke right now, but specifically the the text mentions, mentions Tactus, Roke, and Victra. And I feel like that's a combination of these are the lives that I've risked and willing to risk to push forward. And... It's man, it's it's weighty in that way. You know, I, I also think that he would 
And I think he has to some degree reflected on the loss of loss of Titus, even though it isn't like an emotional loss for Darrow in the same way. It's still a loss for his culture and sort of what Darrow's fighting for. And I feel like that's also a backbone of the conversation here. I think everyone who died in the Institute is a conversation piece like Leah Quinn at this point, I think, is a very apt add in. But but also just even at more of an individual sort of core level of thinking, Tactus yeah. was sort of the experiment. He beca- Based on his own choices, he became the experiment of can gold truly change? And it seemed like he did, but that sort of he, he didn't get away. Like, he didn't really get a chance to confirm that before Lauren struck Tactus down. Right. So he, he's still operating on theories as opposed to having any sort of solid proof that gold can truly change. Yeah, I think any evidence is mostly circumstantial. It's good evidence, and it's good a good theory to be working on, but he doesn't have the sort of follow-up. All he has is um, a man who is basically cornered without much of an option like it, it was fall back in line with darrow or die at darrow's hand yeah that's that's not that's not a open choice those are not good options <laughs> yeah yeah so he he has tentative proof at best that gold it has the ability to truly change i don't know i don't know without Without Lorne killing Tactus, he would have the opportunity to truly see that come to life. But at this point, he's still operating on essentially just a theory mm-hmm. and hoping. I think it's the right call, but he doesn't he doesn't actually have proof here. No, not at all. I am. I think it's a very difficult spot to be in all around. So I would cite something very similar to what you're saying being Darrow is that an inflection point for his decisions to some degree like all all that he's lost and all that he sacrificed needs to come to bear this one more time one more time we're pushing forward we're going to figure it out I'm going to make everything worth it I'm going to make everything worth it with this last shove we're going to get Octavia it's all going to be over and man oh man does not go that way but before we get there, let's uh, let's I've got one more thing, which is the Mustang thing that we were talking about a moment before in which Darrow kind of reflects on the planet's parts that have made itself clear. But he has lingering feelings and fears about Mustang taking part in her plan and how he might potentially lose her. He says, I promise myself I'll tell her if we survive this. She deserves that much. And your thoughts on that bit. I don't think I believe him. That seems like a um, an atheist profession of believing in God r- right before dying. <laughs> as like it, it's kind that's, of no, that's a good way of putting it. Yep. It, it as soon as the threat of death is gone, I don't think he'll follow through with his internal personal promise to himself. It, it seems like a thing that he said in the moment of feeling mortal yeah i don't i don't i don't think he's going to follow through with uh with telling promise okay any other thoughts on the darrow mustang relationship at this point before uh mustang dies just kidding (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> um, it seems like he is um, scared. He seems scared to truly open up to her. And um, for whatever reason, she's the one that commands that sort of fear in him. Uh, she she also seems like the one that would be the most obviously open to a conversation about who he truly is even more than several i think and he can't bring himself to do it equally frustrating and uh, obnoxious like but i get it i totally get it he was basically forced to talk to several about it by several and I don't know. It, it it just seems like he has completely ignored that conversation with Severo when thinking about the idea of telling anybody else this, which is frustrating and I think uh, incorrect. And I, I think this actually gets back to your original assumption on the conversation, though, which is to say you had preconditioned the fact that this wasn't Darrow. Darrow wasn't admitting to anything outside of what he was being accused of, right? Like he was not, he was not forthcoming with the information. Now he's trying to deal with being forthcoming. I think even in the back of his head, Darrow knows that maybe he could have killed Ragnar if he needed to, but I don't think he wanted to. I don't, I don't think he would have. No, no, no. I, but I'm saying if it would have gone wrong, right? Like he could have put Ragnar down. No. Um, I think I think he was a little bit desperate because there there's the there's the mention after that scene where he says something along the lines of it can't be done with reds alone. Um so it was almost oh, of course. it was almost a a leap of faith of like I need an obsidian to be on my side here and this is the only one that I think has the mental capacity to understand and follow through with what I need him to follow through with. So I'm going to take this leap of faith. And if he doesn't agree or doesn't sort of fall in line with what I'm thinking or trying to convince him of, he's going to kill me. But if he doesn't agree with me and he doesn't kill me, I'm not going to win this rebellion anyway. So I might as well not sacrifice the lives of all the Reds that would be in the rebellion to begin with. I, I think that's sort of the uh, options that he was weighing. So I, I think specifically to your point on the on the color thing, right? Like he does ultimately need other colors, but it feels like the easiest way to try to break this secret to someone was Ragnar, right? Like, oh, yeah. So because because he could kill him. Not that he wanted to or not that he maybe even would have in the end, but there, there's this degree of of choice that he kind of gives Ragnar because also like he want he likes Ragnar. He likes him as a person. He likes him as a general. He likes the idea of Ragnar. And I, I think that it helps Darrow to have someone that he can open up to in this way that is another color to get to understand him. But it also feels like the easy way out. He hasn't actually had to tell a goal that he is a red. He has been True. told by a gold to tell him the truth <laughs> about his origins. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I don't, I don't fully buy into the idea right now that Mustang was doing. He wants, I, I think out of anyone else, I think Severo would have been maybe his first choice to tell in general, if he would have had complete control. He didn't, he lost Severo. 
the choice to tell Severo. I feel like the next most logical option is to tell Mustang. And he's kind of wrestling yeah. with that choice. He's the gulf exists between him and Roke. Otherwise, I think Roke would be an option. Um, probably a distant third, you know? Mm-hmm. So I man, I have a tough time. I have a tough time parsing it. But I think that's kind of the brilliance of the the writing is to make us question, you know, why if you if you had such an easy time like coming out to Darrow, why haven't you done that elsewhere? Or Severo, rather. So final point of conversation of the chapter, the brown girl pushes an EMP globe and the final line of today's section. And that's when we begin to die. Yes. Um, Creeping dread. Creeping dread. Also, I I get it that I get that was mentioned later that it was suspicious that there was anybody out during a like wartime thing. That was Um, early earlier no 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 it wasn't it was this is the last line is and that's when we right. begin to die. okay it was before okay. the, the last line but it was like yeah, within yeah. the same chunk yeah right we we until now we haven't mentioned the brown girl correct so I'd, I'd like to bring up the fact that like it seems really strange that nobody would have called that out like darrow seems like he seems sharp enough to have called that out as a suspicious thing. And I know there's a lot going on and I can, I can, I can effectively create sort of a suspension of disbelief in that. But that was odd to me. That's fair. I think it all happened so quick and it was unexpected in the moment. And then he's like, something seems wrong. And then it definitely is wrong. Well, yeah. You know, it's very clearly wrong. And I think he even try like someone even tries to shoot her. If I remember, I don't, maybe I'm thinking about a different moment, but uh, that sounds right. Or someone calls to shoot her. Yeah, and Darryl, that, I like, think that's more accurate. I think I think it's Severo and Daryl yeah. like knocks his gun away. Yep. Or something like that. Yeah, it's it's just a brutal way to end the whole thing. Right. Yeah. Like going into part four, we know that some people are going to die. So with that, we're going to go into your predictions. Let's do it. So, well, who dies? Um, I think some of the howlers. I don't know exactly who's here. I think Screwface is. I don't know who else, but I I think at least a couple of howlers. I think all of the greys die. I think Jupiter dies. I think Lorne dies, maybe in a little bit more of a dramatic way. And then uh, out in space with the Telemannuses, I think Sophocles dies. (laughs) Space space Fox dies. Space Fox dies in space. Yep. Oh, man. Those are are some predictions. That's exciting. All right. (laughs) Um, Is there a mole is the next question. And if so, who is the mole? Yes. So I think... um, I think there was some foul play at hand, forcing them to be 300 kilometers away from their intended drop zone. And I think that mole is Roke. Hmm. I think it's Roke. I think um, I think Darrow's been too neglectful of the friendship with Roke, and he's had a little bit too much and is not feeling the love of the Reaper and has... Uh, sort of decided to double cross him. 
it'll be it'll be exciting i don't want to i don't want to influence your prediction no um, of course cool so your third prediction was actually one that you added that is just a statement that you were predicting so read off or, or recite your your idea for your prediction uh okay so this this sort of deals with what i was just mentioning but I think Ares has at least another operative. We know we know Ares has multiple operatives. We know that from the first book with uh, attack or with uh, Titus. So I think Ares has another operative on the side of the sovereign. And I think Darrow being captured was kind of orchestrated by Ares himself and. Uh, the person leading the party, whoever that is, that is capturing Darrow and his party, is someone someone who is a red or who is an operative of the sun, Sun's Varies in whatever capacity. Um, and the entire point is to bring Darrow to Octavia. Okay. That said, at the same time, I don't believe Octavia is on the moon or on the on on Mars. I think uh, Aja understood that she was probably being tracked by the uh, radiation signatures, and they created a fake sort of landing of the Sovereign hmm. as a distraction. So those are at odds with each other, but that's what I'm thinking. That's that's where my mind's going right now. Okay. That's um, that is definitely interesting enough. I I dig it. So that is it for the predictions. That's going to be a very exciting one to try to track for the record. Um, Yep. There's there's a lot of moving parts there. You're welcome, Cross. (laughs) So moving in to next week, we are going to be starting part four, Ruin. We will be reading chapter 40 through 46. Should be a great time. That's where we'll leave you for the week. As we've mentioned before, we are still growing. Continue. Please refer us to friends and family, whoever else. If you can't refer us to friends or family, please star, leave a review, whatever it is on your platform um, that lets you kind of interact with us. Any subscription, anything like that's a big deal. We're, we're still trying to figure out uh, some of the different statistics and kind of getting into some of the nitty gritty of the details. But any review on any platform makes a serious difference. iTunes being the most prevalent of them. If you have an account, please leave us a review. That'd be excellent. That said, outside of the podcast platforms, our website and our social media are something that we sort of keep tabs on all the time. Our website has our schedule and the drinks that we make and a whole bunch of stuff but our social media we've we've been really kind of focusing on instagram and twitter and i am fucking terrible at instagram but i'm getting better at it and i'm learning and i've been trying to post more on it so uh if you uh if you find us interesting and you use those platforms we are at words whiskey pod at both of them i believe correct Crossland? yep yep, yep. They're the same. so at words whiskey pod on both twitter and instagram yeah pj you're you're insulting your performance on instagram but you take infinitely better photos than i do so uh, i kudos. take good pictures but my comments are bullshit <laughs> like they're terrible we're, we're super happy to see any other listener comments and posts and anything like that to respond to us on twitter and instagram like pj said we we'd love to talk about it we look forward to uh running 
a audience question um, at the end of these. So feel free to send any questions or comments or anything that you want us to talk about to our Gmail account, which is words and whiskey show at gmail.com. That again is words and whiskey show at gmail.com. It's within our show notes too. So you can check it out. Otherwise just DMS on Twitter or Instagram will work as well. Like we're not super strict about where we get. <laughs> yeah. Where, wherever, wherever, but that's mail also from our, our mail. Yeah. Other than that, we are very excited to see you next week. Mm-hmm.